We will be in Psalm 130 this morning. We are in a series. Uh, we just started last week. Uh, we looked at uh, Psalm 30 about praying our fear. Uh, this week we're going to be in Psalm 130. Uh, we, I, this is a recur- reoccurring, recurring, sorry, recurring uh, series at BCC. We've been doing it for some years uh, where we look at the Psalms uh, because they are songs. Uh, they are prayers. They are um, liturgies. They are structures. They are laments. They are meditations. They're hymns uh, that really address every part of what it means to be a follower of God in a world antagonistic to God's ways. So one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is true Uh, is because it answers the great questions of humanity on the first few pages, right? How did I get here, right? Genesis 1, like, he made you. Uh, uh, What's wrong with the world? Genesis 3, you know, sin. We we rebelled against God and and everything broke. Uh, What does it mean to live a good life, a life in relationship with God? What was I made for? What is my purpose to be in relationship with? With him, or as one of the great creeds says, is to enjoy him forever by being obedient. I'm summarizing. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I believe it's true. Here, here's another reason that I believe the Bible is true. It blows my mind. Parts of this document are more than 3,000 years old. Uh, there's not a part of it that's not nearly 2,000 years old. And somehow it still seems to be incredibly relevant. That's stunning to me. And here's what I mean. It doesn't just, in this case, it doesn't just give us propositions. Hey, here's the thing that's true. Go believe and go live according to that. It also does this amazing other thing, which is it meets us in our weakness. It meets us in our inability. There's this great verse that says, God knows our frame and knows that we are but dust. That is very reassuring because I feel sometimes like the expectations are so high. Um, I, I, when, I would go, when I go to the gym sometimes, I, I, they'll tell me to do an exercise. Like, hey, do this thing. And it's something like always that I can't do, right? Like it's like lift this big heavy thing right over your head. And I'm like, well, that seems dangerous. No one should do that. And uh, they're like, no, no, just do it. And then I do it and I can't do it. And they're like, ah, just try to get better. I'm like, no, like I need you to meet me in my weakness, not just tell me to get better. And, and, and scripture doesn't just tell us what to do. It doesn't just tell us what is true and real. Although those are incredibly valuable, it also meets us in our weakness. <laughs> And our inability to live up. And the Psalms are so good at that. They're so deep and so rich at meeting us where we are. Not only that, it gives us a language for prayer, right? If you need to know how to pray, which I think is a very important thing. I mean, after all, even the disciples, one of the things they asked Jesus was like, teach us to pray. If you need a language of prayer, it's where we find the people of God have found their language for prayer for so many years. It's incredibly important for expressing our faith, not just privately, but together, corporately. This is what we believe to be true. And it covers just every aspect of life. I, I, it's so, so rich. So this morning, uh, Psalm 130. I'm going to read it. It says this. It's, it's titled A Song of Ascents. There, there are several of those in the Bible, 15 of them, I think, and in the Psalms. A Psalm of Ascents. And here's how it, how it goes. It says, Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Yahweh. 
Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O oh Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh, there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Whoa, okay, so this is so good. All right, so here's what's going on. This is a psalm of ascents, which means this. Uh, probably, we, there's some debate, but probably uh, these were songs that were sung on annual journeys to Jerusalem, which was on the hill, high on a hill. So they would go, be going up to Jerusalem from wherever they were, and they would sing on the way up to Jerusalem. They would sing these psalms, possibly, right? Also, though, I think there's this element, and you probably notice it in that psalm, they start one place, and then the heart elevates as it goes along, right? There's this ascending, as you would ascend to Jerusalem, your heart would ascend to the goodness that lied at the temple in Jerusalem where God was, where these festivals that they would go to annually were. I think that's also going on here. And it starts this way. It starts with just an absolute cry of despair, uh, out of the depths I cry to you. Uh, there's another psalm, Psalm 69, that kind of like gives it, uh, that picture, uses that same picture, but I, I like the way that kind of unpacks a little bit with the, the, the thought behind it. Psalm 69 says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. It is a cry of despair of someone who is miserable and hurt. And they're in so deep that there's no solution. There doesn't seem to be any solution. There doesn't seem to be a way out. Um, Pretty common human experience to feel like there's no hope, that there's no way out. And so that's where this psalm starts in despair. And and, and then I think that you read in the next verse, in verse 3, you finally get to the nature of the trouble, right? It says, uh, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? So there's some kind of guilt here. There's some kind of of sin that is happening. Now, maybe initially uh, the psalmist was driven to this place of despair, this place of, the, of being in, in the pit, as they describe it. Uh, maybe they were driven there by some trouble that happened, some, some serious situation they were in, uh, some worry, some grief. And once they were there, once they were in this place and began to cry to God, their heart turns, God turns their heart, and they realize that their problem is actually a lot deeper than they thought. Um, have you ever been to the mechanic, taking a car to the mechanic? And here's the thing about the mechanic. I don't know what's, I, I don't, I don't know things. I know enough to go like, I need to take my car to the mechanic. And you get there and I'm always nervous because no matter what it is, there's always going to be something way more expensive behind it. I'm like, you know what that is? That's a bearing. I know that. I, know, I recognize that sound from my old Honda. It's a bearing, but I'm going to take it to the mechanic and it's going to need a new engine. Like, I don't know why, I don't know how it, it escalates that way. I trust them. I'm not saying they're lying, but like, but I always feel like there's always a deeper problem that I don't even want to investigate. 
there's this, uh, this passage, uh, Jesus is teaching, or he's standing there, and, and they, these friends bring this paralytic. It's, it's in Mark. This guy can't walk. Says, and they came, this is Mark 2. They came to him bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I I don't want to be disrespectful here, but if you're a paralytic and you think Jesus is going to heal you and he says to you, your sins are forgiven, let's be honest, that's a little bit of a letdown probably, right? Like, Like, you've heard of all that he's been doing and he sees you and you're like, your sins are forgiven. You're like, real good. Also, paralyzed. Uh, He goes on to actually heal him physically as well, but he actually says to him, when he sees him, he has compassion. He sees their faith in who he is, and he says, your sins are forgiven. A lot of times we go to God with one problem and find out, we just want a band-aid, and he's like, nah, you need major surgery. And I think that's maybe what happened here. Is that he goes to God and says, hey, this is going on. I don't know what to do about it. And then as he begins to pray, as you go to God with your things, with your situation, with your, with your, with your worries and your concerns, a lot of times what you find is God cuts you very, very deep. <laughs> Way more than you want it. And you find out that underlying all of this is something in your own heart that has to be dealt with. And so he comes to God in this prayer and he says, it is deep. There's my, deep my, my problem is deeper and it is my sin and my guilt. So here is why I mentioned that, that I love the relevance of, of Scripture. Uh, so I, there's a way, go home and, and just like Google, like why do I feel guilty all the time? Like I was just gonna like, I was curious like what was currently like out there, articles about guilt. So I typed like, I'm curious, let's, let's look at why do I feel, and I hit the G, and it was like, guilty all the time, filled in. I was like, oh my goodness, like, okay. So I began to read these articles. Here's what I found out. Like, I think that, that there's, there's some teaching on this way of thinking that would say that the idea of guilt is, is outdated. It's an old-timey idea. And we've had modern ways of dealing with it, right? So one of the modern ways of dealing with it is to say, like, you get to determine right and wrong, so whatever you do is right, why would you feel guilty about it? That problem with that is uh, it doesn't work so great because I still feel guilty for some reason. Another way to deal with it is uh, some kind of uh, self-prescribed uh, help, some, some kind of self-help, which, which can sometimes help us out of um, the shallows of self-pity, but probably doesn't help us with the depths of despair. It seems to me that modern people, even though we sometimes feel we've outgrown the idea of guilt and shame, still seem to carry it around a whole lot, don't we? And I think that the reason that we have this guilt, or what guilt even is, is this idea that we fail to live up to some standard. Right? There's some standard that we have failed. We have done something wrong because we have offended some societal standard. You offend a societal standard, right? And you go to jail, right? Uh, you, you, you're guilty and you go to jail. You have offended, but you, it's usually closer to home. Like you've offended some sensibility in a peer group, right? Like when you're young, like you could actually feel guilty because you wore the wrong thing. You're like, oh, I didn't know we weren't wearing members, jacket, members only jackets anymore. My bad. Like I... And then they came back and you're like, I didn't know, know Birkenstocks were back. I'll pull all my back out of the closet again. I, I didn't know. We, even something that, that simple, we feel like we've failed up to a standard and we feel lesser than. But even closer to home with family and friends that we're close to 
or even inside our own self that we set standards that we don't live up to expectations of us that we fail and the consequence of that is the feeling of guilt i think that even when we don't realize it even when we don't realize that it's guilt we still feel it now in the bible guilt is the failure to live up to god's standard and so uh, the guilt that we feel there is, is, is not living up to that standard. And so what you end up with sometimes in the human life is this really weird thing where there's errors in both directions. C.S. Lewis once wrote that uh, the devil never introduces uh, errors into the world in singles. It's always in pairs. Here's what I mean. It is possible to feel guilty about a thing you ought not feel guilty about. It's possible to feel guilty and not be guilty. It's also possible to not feel guilty and be guilty. Either one of those is true. So my feeling in the moment maybe not be might, might not be incredibly well attuned to what's actually going on. And here's how we fall into that error. It depends on what standard we're applying. Right? So if, if I feel that I should be doing this, if I feel like in, in, in my relationship with my wife or if I feel like in my relationship with God or, or as, a, as a father or, or as a societal standard that I feel like I should be doing these things and I'm hitting all those marks, I could feel fine even though I'm failing abjectly in some other moral part of my life. But I'm looking at this one standard going, look at me, I'm doing pretty good. The other is true. Also true. I could be walking according to what God has called me to do and other people or my own expectations of myself could make me feel guilty because I'm applying an unbiblical standard to my life. Oh, I've done this and I've done this and I failed in all of these ways and I feel guilty. And the Bible's over here going like, those aren't my standards. It's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He says, you have tied burdens on people's backs they were never intended to carry. You've applied a standard to them that God didn't. What's wrong with you? And so we can be in one of those situations depending on the standard that we're focusing on. And I think that sometimes it it, it comes out sideways, right? Maybe we don't see it as guilt, but sometimes we experience it as anxiety. I wonder if a lot of the anxiety that we feel as a culture, as a society, not clinical, Anxiety, but, but the general anxiety that most people feel, this general unnamed fear, I wonder if there is some sense that we're just not living up to some standard and we don't know what it is. So we feel constantly anxious. You know, that feeling of like, no matter what I do, it's never going to be enough. That I'm constantly busy and constantly going, but I can never seem to finish all of the things. That no matter how good I do, there's always someone out there doing just a little bit better. You know that feeling of being in a pit up to your neck and you can't drown? You feel like you're about to drown? Yeah, like that's just part of the modern existence, I'm afraid. And maybe we're applying unbiblical standards to our lives and it's coming out as anxiety. Or or maybe it's coming out as frustration. I know that in my life it's come out as anger. When I quit my, I mean, if there's, if you had, uh, you already have a hundred reasons to feel sorry for my poor wife, but, but she married a very successful young engineer who decided to then deep into his career, pretty, pretty far into his career, go to seminary. 
Like, that's, like, that's not what she's like. I mean, she could have looked at me and been like, that's not what I signed up for. But she didn't. She goes, yep, that's exactly what you should do. I'm glad you finally realized it. And as I left my job, where I was the primary earner and became not the primary earner, I began to feel guilty over time that I was not contributing like I used to. I began to feel guilty that I wasn't earning, that she was earning more money. And so I, every time I spent money, I felt guilty, like this was her money. And I felt, it just became overwhelmed. And the way that comes, I felt guilty that I wasn't living up to some societal or standard that I had set for myself. And I felt guilty all the time. And way, the way it came out is, I would get frustrated and angry at her. And it was guilt. Unbiblical bad standard guilt. <laughs> I was failing a different moral standard of loving and serving my wife who never once looked at me and said, that's not your money. But we feel these standards that we have to live up to. And the reason that we feel them, the reason that we feel so often like we're drowning is because, well, there's a desire inside of us to live up to something. There's just, it's in all of us, uh, whether it's, hey, I'm a good friend, or, or I care about dogs and cats, or like, whether I, I'm a kind person, like whatever standard that we've established that we need to live up to, we feel this need, it's part of being human, to feel that we need to live up to some standard. And scripture says the reason that we were made was that we were created by God to advance his good purposes in the world. And here's why we feel guilty. Because we are. The Bible says very clearly that we've all failed God's standard. Let's be real clear. That's not hard to believe. Like, I, I fail my own standards on a daily basis. Like, I wouldn't want to die and stand before God and be judged by the standards that I've established for other people in my life. That would be horrible. I would fail those standards, much less a holy and righteous God. We feel guilty for not living up to things because we don't. And, and, and ultimately, when we compare, look, at, look at what we're supposed to live up in, to in, in God's standards, we fall short. The reality is that we have done great harm in the world. Why wouldn't we think we'd be held accountable? I mean, it's reasonable to assume that we're responsible for the evil that we've done. That's why Jesus' words... He's teaching about stuff. He's teaching, and, and, and teaching people, and, and he says this crazy thing. He says, hey, you know how the law says that you guys shouldn't murder? And everybody's like, yeah, we've never done that. And Jesus says, if you've been angry with your brother, you're guilty of murder. And they're like, what? And he says, hey, hey, I know that you guys have read, and you've heard it said before, that if you commit adultery, that you are guilty under God's law. What that really means is that if you've ever had lust in your heart, you're guilty. And so I always read that as like this some higher, well, I gotta just try even harder now. What he's saying, I think, though, is this. The difference between someone who gets incredibly anger, angry or someone who has lust in their heart and someone who commits adultery is often just opportunity and upbringing, right? Like, like the idea that somehow I wouldn't do those things if I grew up in a different situation, in a different place, in a different part of the world is silly, that capacity for sin and brokenness is in all of us. It's at our heart. He's saying that fundamental inside of us, there's something that is broken, and it leads to us feeling guilty. So what do we do? 
So what happens now? The psalmist says this. This is what he says. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive. Listen to me, please. To the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist is not in doubt that with God, there is forgiveness. I don't know that we can say that about any other standard that we think about that we fail to live up to. Kind of that vague standard of, of uh, the, the level of person, the kind of life that you're supposed to be living, the, how often you're supposed to go on vacation, the kind of car you're supposed to have to drive. All those vague things, when you sin against those, you don't live up to those standards. I don't know how you find forgiveness. But when we don't live up to God's standards, when we apply those to our life and say, this is who he's called us to be, he's, the psalmist is completely confident that there is for forgiveness from God. His gift, this, this, he calls it mercy. This. So there's this really interesting notion in, in scripture that of two things. Uh, two things are really, really important. They're held very, very high. One in God's nature. One is that he is just. Justice means you get what you deserve. Grace or mercy means you, you don't get what you deserve. And somehow God is both of these. Somehow they, the, the, the penalty will be paid and somehow he will be merciful. And the psalmist is confident when he cries out for mercy that there is not just mercy, but abundant mercy. I am in the depth of sin. I cannot go on like this. Actual despair. No hope. And his result is to think about what he knows of God and go, but you know what? Even though I'm guilty with you, abundant forgiveness. Forgiveness that will not run out. Forgiveness that goes on. Not just enough forgiveness to get by, but forgiveness for me, for you, for you, for you, for the rest of your life, and for as many people that ask for it. There's actual forgiveness. Beautiful. If you grew up in church, I hope you know this already. I hope you know that already. I hope you believe it. Here is the problem. Here's where I am, though. I know this, and I still feel guilty. I know that. I believe in justification. I believe in sanctification. I believe in all of these things, and I still feel guilty. As a matter of fact, there's actually like a, I don't, I don't know if it's a phase or a brand of Christianity uh, that actually... Maybe, maybe it's just a thing that, that me and everyone I know that grew up in church went through, uh, where you actually felt guilty about not feeling guilty enough. You know, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, if you didn't feel guilty, you just weren't Christianing hard enough, right? Because if you Christian hard enough, you will feel guilty about everything all the time. Like, I, it's like, that's how I kind of grew up. It's like, well, yeah, like, I did this and this and this for God today, but look at all the people I didn't love. And you just felt guilty always. I mean, not just for the terrible thing that I did, but for all the things that I didn't do. And I just, I just kind of, it, it's, just, it's exhausting. I think a lot of the times when some people walk away from the faith, we just get tired of people walk away from the faith. They just get tired of feeling guilty all the time and decide to leave. I can't do this anymore. It's up to here and I can't get away out. I feel like I'm drowning. So what do we do? So here it is, the psalmist's answer. With you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word I 
hope. You wait and you hope. It's almost, um, it's almost an American sin, an American sin to suffer, right? I mean, like, we kind of grow up thinking, like, if you hurt, if bad things are going on, if you are struggling, that's a bad and wrong thing. Uh, something is wrong in my heart or in the world if I am struggling, the Bible knows no notion of that. You can hurt and you can struggle and you can go through things. But I think it came in our idea, somehow it came in our head, that if we are struggling, if we are hurting, if we, hurting, if we have doubts, if we feel guilty, if we are hurting, that means that we are not trusting God. What if you feel like you're drowning? Because you're trusting God. There's this great story uh, in, in what's called Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, the second book of the Torah, and it's the story of God saving his people out of Egypt. It's an amazing story. He sends these plagues, and, and the most powerful nation in the world at the time, Egypt, the Pharaoh actually just kicks them out. He's just, God, they don't even have sharp sticks, and he kicks them out, and they arrive at this sea, this big body of water, and the Pharaoh realizes what he's done, and he sends the tanks of the day, uh, chariots after them. They look around, they turn around, the people of God who have come out, he's taking them out, and he's leading them out into the desert. They turn around, and they see these chariots come after them, and they turn around in front of them is a huge body of water that God splits in half. (laughs) He splits it and says, walk through there, and you now have a choice of what to do. What if you were in that moment and you're looking at the chariots and you're looking at a wall of water and you're like, I'm kind of freaked out by it right now. I mean, it's a reasonable thing to be afraid of, right? Like you can just look into the wall of water and there's fish swimming around like there's an aquarium. There's actually a wall of fire there. And God's like, no, just like walk on through. What if you are terrified and scared and hurting and lonely because you're trusting God? Because you're human and it's a scary thing to do. And what we have to do is grow in that trust. All I'm trying to say is this. Just because you are in pain, just because you are struggling, just because you have shame and guilt doesn't necessarily mean that you aren't trusting God. You just need to wait on him. You wait and you're still with him and you listen because the other alternative is to do what we tend to do in all of scripture, by the way, is to go, you know what? This feels terrible. I'm going to try to fix this myself. And we begin to reach out to the things of the world, right? Addiction, so many times addiction is a response to the feeling of drowning. So many times the response of just jumping from relationship to relationship to relationship is a response to the feeling of drowning. Well, if I had this, it would fix it. If I had this relationship, it would fix it. If I had her or him in my life, it would fix it. If I had this, I would fix it. If I had just more cheesecake, everything would be okay. Whatever it is, right? We reach out to the thing, and you know what? I will lay hold of the blessing myself and fix this. And the psalmist says, you know what I need to do from the pit? I wait on God to rescue me. I wait on him to meet me. And our brains say, but I can order this thing from Amazon, and it will be here tomorrow, and everything will be okay. If I just bought this pair of shoes, that feeling might go away. If I, just, if I just go out and do this, that feeling might abate for just a second. And I could breathe. The psalmist says, what I do is I wait. I wait with expectant hope. Here's what I'm trying to say. You might feel like it is midnight in your life. The Bible says that morning is certain. 
It might feel like forever, but it is certain. His deliverance comes to those who trust him and wait on him. And do not try to grasp the blessing for ourselves. If you are hurting, hurting and suffering, it does not necessarily mean that you have failed. It might mean that God is doing something big in your life. And you wait on him. The other thing is this. Sometimes we just have to go deeper. Sometimes we have to go deeper. I think that it's one thing to know, to say, yeah, Chris, I I believe all of these things. I understand the gospel. I could explain it. I could definitely pass a test. I I, I apprehend and can conceive of the notions of justice and sanctification. and, and, And I even believe in the resurrection from the dead. I believe all of these things. And what we actually need to do because we know these things is we actually have to press deeper and learn. Well, here's what we have to do. Here's the way to do it. The fountainhead is how uh, this guy named John Owen described it. The fountainhead of all of these realities is knowing what God is like. Knowing his person. Knowing him. Looking and seeing his heart. See, I think that we get in these situations and we feel guilty all these times because I feel guilty about this or think that we should feel guilty or all these things that we just kind of constantly go through that make us feel like we're drowning these, these unbiblical standards we apply to ourselves. All these things because we think that God is standing above us like a chastising bad father ready to yell at us ready to kick us when we do wrong, ready to knock us down. And so that went, that's, the reason, that's why we think when we're hurting, when things are going bad, God must be mad at us. That's not true. If you look at Scripture, if you go deep, if you spend time in the entirety of Scripture, what you find out is the heart of God is to love you, to forgive you, to pour out his mercy. I can't get over, there's this, this verse, Jesus, the only place in the New Testament where Jesus describes himself. He says, come to me because I am lowly and gentle. I don't think that we're going to be able to wait for God and understand that he's not out to get us and to squash us, but longs to deliver us and to forgive our sins and so that we can live out of this place. When we do fail, we run to him till we understand that he desires deeply for us to come to him with our sins so he could forgive us. He wants to. He delights to, the scripture says. And when we read these texts and we immerse ourselves in scripture, when we not just, not just read, but, but, but study and, and, and memorize and, and be a part, give ourselves to a church that, that, that constantly is pointing us to this reality, when we go deeper, we, we, we find this forgiveness that leads to this kind of joy. Oh, his, Israel, hope in the Lord. There is steadfast love. There is plentiful redemption. He will redeem you. He has paid the price to buy you back. We live out of that place. We live under the care and love of that God who has done these things. I'm just going to read this to you. What they haven't done, Christians who just comprehend, what they haven't done is looked beyond the gospel into the heart from which it comes. They've downloaded the formula of the gospel, but not the person out of whom it pours. They believe that they are justified by faith alone on the basis of what Christ has done. This is vital to be cherished daily, but they have not peered down into the source out of which that gospel flows. 
It's not just that he did these things and we know these things and that they're true. It's that there is a person behind them that loves you. That is the fountainhead from which all of these truths flow. It's not just a proposition, but a God who meets us in our weakness and says, I am gentle and lowly. Come to me. And then this, last thing. Pray your guilt. That's what the psalmist is doing here, right? Taking his, his guilt, his, his shame, his struggles in front of God Almighty and saying, this is where I am, all I have. I've not lived up today. I've not done these things. But I have a great hope because I know that in you, what you were like, your very nature, is to pour out your forgiveness. We go in prayer and we sort out the standards. Are we trying to live up to a biblical standard for which God offers plentiful forgiveness? Are we trying to live up to some worldly standard, some standard we set for ourselves that is not biblical and we've instead replaced the love of a God who wants good for us and has given us a standard to see his good in the world and in our heart and replaced it with some lesser standard? The biblical word for this, by the way, is idol. And we've given ourselves this other thing that doesn't love us, that won't be there for us, that won't forgive us, probably. I think that some of our anxiety, some of the feeling of the being in the pit that we feel is that we're not living up to some standard that God never set for us. It's okay if your house is not as big as the person's next to you. It's okay if your car is not as nice. It's okay if your kids don't do all the sports. It's okay if they don't do all of the things. That's not something, you're not going to get to heaven and God's be like, yeah, but you know, like, why didn't you do travel ball? It's not going to happen. It's not some standard that you have to live up to. But we feel that if we don't give our kids the opportunity, we're being bad parents, right? If we don't do all these things, are we bad parents? And we live up to some standard that God never set for us. The standard he set for you as a parent is, are you pointing them to Christ? Are you talking about Jesus? Are you repenting in front of them? Are you praying with them? That's the standard. Show them how much I love them by how you love them. We sort out in prayer, do my feelings of anxiety, do my feelings of guilt, do my feelings of shame, do they come from some standard that I have set up as an idol or do they come from God? And if they come from God, if I have failed him, I've actually sinned against him, then what do I do? Because I've given myself to an idol, what do I do? I cry out to him and I ask for forgiveness and he's promised to give it because it's plentiful. This is a daily thing, studying, going deeper and knowing him. Do not let guilt destroy you. It's true we're guilty, but there's no need for it to destroy us because the God of the universe came as a person and was ripped apart so that we know that we never will be. By faith in him alone. This is how we live. The Bible is so beautiful. It reaches out to us from thousands of years ago because it is living, it is breathing, and it reaches into our life and says, yes, you've fallen short. I know that you've fallen short of the things that I told you. Here's how to live. Wow, it's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for the words of life in your scriptures. Thank you that you have met me in my weakness because I do not believe enough in your forgiveness. I do not believe enough in your mercy. I do not believe enough. And you meet me with these prayers, teaching me to pray, teaching me how to cry out. Mm. Give me strength to know that you are good. Give me strength to know that with you, 
There are joys that we can't even imagine. Give us the strength and the courage to turn from lesser idols, to turn from lesser things that we give ourselves to, to the standards that you never asked us to live up for that are actually destroying us, that are dehumanizing us. And instead, give ourselves to living for Christ, to living out of the place of forgiveness, to living out of the reality that all things will one day be made new, to be living out of the reality that you will complete the thing that you began in us. That because of the body that was broken and the blood that was spilled, we can live abundant life now and know that we have eternal life that begins now in him. So meet us in these graces. Meet us in these prayers. Help us, give us, just light, just give us the eyes to see the value of going to you in prayer, of studying your word, of knowing you, of pouring into the fountainhead of grace and mercy that is you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.